dedication preface and introductory of autobiography of a seaman volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Timothy Ferguson The Autobiography of a Seaman by Thomas Cochrane, 10th Earl of Dundonald, Volume 1 Dedication to the Electors of Westminster, by whose generous support, nearly half a century ago, I was rescued from despair the result of unmerited injuries inflicted by hostile political faction in retaliation for my advocacy of naval and administrative reforms and to whose honour be it recorded that in no instance during our long political connection did any of their body ever ask me to procure for him place benefit or emolument this volume is inscribed by their faithful servant dundonald preface this present volume narrates my services in the British Navy, from my entrance into it, and including the action in X Roads, on the 11th, 12th, and 13th of April, 1809. The result of that action, viz. the court-martial of Lord Gambier, virtually a prosecution of myself, my non-employment thenceforward in the Navy, the unscrupulous plot by which I was driven from that noble service, my restoration to rank by His Late Majesty William the Fourth and to the honours which had accompanied that rank by my present most gracious sovereign queen victoria form subjects which together with many others will be concisely set forth in the succeeding portion of this work to one of these points i shall however here briefly allude my restoration to the naval service not for the purpose of prejudging the subject but with the intention of embracing the first opportunity which has been afforded me of paying a tribute of thanks to those who convinced of the injustice of the sentence were mainly instrumental in procuring its reversal among these i am proud to rank one the soundness of whose judgment and the disinterestedness of whose patriotism have throughout a long life never failed to secure the highest respect amongst men of every shade of political party the marquis of lansdowne whom, from the commencement of my unmerited troubles, has to this day manifested the most generous confidence in my honour, and has as generously supported my cause when my character has been called in question. If proof were wanted of my entire innocence of the accusation laid at my charge forty-five years ago, no prouder testimony of incapability to have committed the imputed offence could be adduced than the unabated friendship of the marquis of lansdowne simply because no man with a stain on his character could have retained any place in that illustrious nobleman's consideration to another nobleman whose name will descend to the remotest posterity as the promoter of everything rationally liberal in politics and the untiring advocate of measures calculated to promote social advancement my warmest thanks are no less due first my counsel and for half a century my friend to the long-continued esteem of lord brougham i owe no small portion of that consolation which for so many years formed my only support under a weight of persecution enough to have bowed any man and not so supported to the earth into which had it not been for the disinterested countenance thus afforded by men above reproach i must have permanently sunk one testimony of my venerated friend i may be allowed to adduce Quote, I must be distinctly understood to deny the accuracy of the opinion which Lord Ellenborough appears to have formed in Lord Cochrane's case, and deeply to lament the verdict of guilty which the jury returned after three hours consulting and hesitation. Our own complaint was his lordship's refusal to adjourn after the prosecutor's case closed, and his requiring us to enter upon our defence at so late an hour past nine o'clock so that the adjournment took place at midnight and before we had called our witnesses i speak of the trial at guildhall only lord ellenborough was equally to blame with his brethren in the court of the king's bench for that most cruel and unjustifiable sentence which at once secured lord cochrane's re-election for westminster 
in eighteen thirty three the government of which i was a member restored this great warrior to his rank of admiral in our navy the country therefore in the event of hostilities would now have the inestimable benefit of his services whom none perhaps ever equalled in heroic courage and whose fertility of resources military as well as naval places him high among the very first of commanders that his honours of knighthood so gloriously won should still be withholden is a stain not upon him but upon the councils of his country and after his restoration to the service it is as inconsistent and incomprehensible as it is cruel and unjust Quote ends. footnote begins on the accession of her present most gracious majesty those honours were restored every attempt to obtain their restoration during the reign of his late majesty having failed from causes which will be stated in the next volume and notwithstanding that his majesty himself warmly espoused my cause End footnote. to many others high in public estimation and in the councils of their sovereign i have been equally indebted for countenance and support but as it has been my lot to outlive them they are beyond the reach of thanks among these may be mentioned the late duke of hamilton the earl of auckland sir francis burdett my late warm-hearted friend and colleague mr whitbread mr hume and others whose names have escaped my memory rather than my gratitude last though foremost in estimation is another friend found where man will seldom look for a friend in vain at home the countess of dundonald my wife knowing the opinion of her sovereign with regard to the prosecution which had entailed on me so many years of misery and equally well aware that in the first years of his majesty's reign the non-reversal of that unjust sentence was owing to the influence of some in his majesty's councils whose political animosity sixteen years before had no small share in its infliction that ardent and heroic lady determined to penetrate to the foot of the throne and learn from the lips of the sovereign himself whether it was consistent with the dignity of his crown that its attribute of mercy should be the sport of an almost extinct political faction the step was a bold one but the ardour which had conceived it to be necessary lacked not the energy to carry out its resolve in spite of the coolness of some about the court and the positive rudeness of others whose names it is not worth while to resuscitate this devoted lady gained an interview with her sovereign and with the greatest respect to besought his majesty not to permit the benevolence of his disposition and his own belief in the innocence of her unjustly maligned husband to be thwarted by those whose office it was to advise but not to control his better judgment his majesty graciously listened and his reply was kingly that quote, he would no longer allow the reparation which was her husband's due to be withheld End quote. A change of ministry shortly afterwards followed, and, as already quoted in an extract from the writings of Lord Brougham, my restoration to rank rewarded the heroic efforts of my devoted wife. Nevertheless, a leaven of former political malice remained, sufficiently powerful to prevent my restoration to the honours with which a previous sovereign had invested me, but of which I had been despoiled with every mark of degradation which political animosity could invent. Footnote begins viz a forcible intrusion into my apartments in the king's bench prison in the dead of night with a demand for the immediate surrender of the insignia End footnote. this gracious act of restoring my honours was reserved for her present majesty who with the delicacy which is one of her majesty's noblest characteristics gave back the boon of which i had for so many years been wrongfully deprived and subsequently conferred upon me at the age of seventy-three my first command of a british fleet for both marks of her majesty's kindness and appreciation of my former services i am deeply grateful but alas reparation came too late to compensate for the early hopes and just expectations of a life forcibly wasted as regarded myself or my country the moral to use an old-fashioned phrase of my chequered career is this that they who in political matters propose to themselves a strict and rigid adherence to the truth of their convictions irrespective of personal consequences must expect obloquy rather than reward and that they who obstinately pursue their professional duty in the face of routine and official prejudice may think themselves lucky if they escape persecution 
such a moral may be derogatory in the national point of view but it is the result of my own bitter experience notwithstanding which were my life to begin anew i would pursue the same unflinching course with regard to naval abuses of following out my own convictions a course which would produce the same result to myself the consolation of my own rectitude even though i might be deprived of all other reward still all is not dark i have survived malignity and its chief cause viz the enmity arising from my zealous advocacy of departmental and political reform the latter has been achieved to a greater extent than the early political reformers amongst whose ranks i was enrolled ever dreamt of and even departmental reform has become fashionable though it may not have advanced far beyond that point in one respect i will boldly assert that this narrative of my life is worthy of example it will show the young officer that in spite of obstacles warm attachment and untiring devotion to my noble profession enabled me to render some services to my country upon which i may be allowed to reflect with satisfaction even though this be accompanied with bitter reflection as to what the all-powerful enmity of my political opponents cruelly deprived me of further opportunity to accomplish in conclusion i must express my thanks to mr earp whose zeal has exhumed from documents almost in my own estimation beyond comprehension or arrangement the mass of facts condensed within the compass of this volume footnote begins in the great earthquake of valparaiso in eighteen twenty two my house shared the common destruction and from the torrents of rain which accompanied the unusual atmospheric disturbance my papers were saturated with water to such an extent that it became necessary to lay them to dry in the sun whilst undergoing this process one of the whirlwinds common to the chilean coast suddenly came on and scattered them in all directions many were lost but many more torn and rendered almost undecipherable whilst all that remained have been ever since in confusion the labour of accurate compilation from such materials may be imagined footnote ends in the succeeding portion of this work should god spare me to see its completion i trust to render additional service by an attempt to deduce from past naval experience the best means of preserving unimpaired our future maritime efficiency should the attempt be the means of awakening national attention the gratification will be mine of having left no unworthy legacy to my country dundonald december the fourteenth eighteen fifty nine end of preface introductory some account of the dundonald family tradition has assigned to the cochrans a derivation from one of the scandinavian sea rovers who in a remote age settled on the lands of renfrew and Eyre. there is reason to believe the tradition well founded but to trace its authenticity would be foreign to the purpose of the present work in later times incidents of historic interest connected with the family justify allusion as forming contributions not only to the national annals of scotland but to those of england also the earliest authentic record of our house is contained in the subjoined extract from crawford's peerage of scotland Quote, this family which originally took its surname from the barony of cochrane in renfrewshire is of great antiquity and though none of the family arrived to the dignity of peerage till the reign of king charles i yet it is undeniable that they were barons of special account for many ages before and endowed with large possessions in these parts and elsewhere the first of whom i have found upon record is waldenus de coveron that is cochrane who in twelve sixty two is witness to the grant which dungal the son of soyaya made to walter stuart earl of monteith of sundry lands in the county of argyle which came in after times to be transmitted to forester of Carden. another william de coverin is mentioned in Priu as a person of account in this county who makes his submission to king edward i anno domini twelve ninety six in the ragman roll also john de coverin is witness in the regular election of james abbot of paisley seventeenth of david the second anno thirteen forty six the next remarkable person in the family is gosseline de cochrane who flourished under king david bruce he is witness to several grants made by robert the second when earl of strathern to the religious of paisley an abbey he assumed into his particular patronage wherein his ancestors donations being made to the glory of god are particularly narrated he left issue william de cochrane of that ilk his son 
who obtained from king robert the second a charter of the lands of cochrane to be held in as ample a manner as any of his progenitors held the same from the lord high steward of scotland dated on the twenty second of september thirteen eighty nine as he stood in special favour with the king so was he in no less with robert the third his son to whom it seems he had been serviceable for when he came to the crown he had been so grateful a sense thereof that in the second year of his reign anno thirteen ninety two he made him a grant of forty shillings sterling in annuity arising out of the profits of the burr of rutherglen he was succeeded by robert his son who in fourteen fifty six resigned his estates in favour of allan his son Quote ends. this surrender of his estate appears to have been made for no other purpose than to devote himself to the study and practice of architecture in which as an art scotland was at that time behind other nations in the exercise of his self-imposed profession robert cochrane is said to have displayed great skill in the erection of several edifices and when by the favour of king james the third he afterwards rose to power his architectural eminence procured for him amongst the host of enemies created by his elevation the contemptuous appellation of the mason cheel it was not however his architectural skill alone which gave him a place in the sovereign's estimation but his good broadsword and powerful arm the efficiency of which having been displayed in a combat in the king's presence attracted his majesty's attention Quote in footnote he came to be known to the king by a duel which he fought with another and presently from an architect came to be made a courtier and was put in a fair way of rising to some great advancement for having performed some lighter matters entrusted to him with diligence and also accommodating himself to the king's humour he was soon admitted to advise concerning the grand affairs of the kingdom insomuch that preston chose him to be his son-in-law buchanan volume two page three hundred and one but that which made cochrane most envied was his earldom of march which country the king had either given to him or at least committed to his trust upon the death of the king's younger brother buchanan volume two page three hundred and nine footnote and quote end so much so that the king finding him to be of good family and possessed of great talent placed him near his person the result being that in a brief space of time he became his chief adviser and the great opponent of the scottish nobility who sought to hold the king in their power in short robert cochrane appears to have been to james something like what wolsey subsequently was to king henry the eighth not in power only but also in ostentation in the latter respect lindsay says of him that even his pavilions were of silk and the fastening changed thereof richly gilt pinkerton says he became the fountain of royal favour and was elevated to a giddy and invidious height of power this being the earldom of mar this advancement to the earldom of mar says buchanan was the chief source of hatred of the nobility who were disgusted with james partly by reason of his familiarity with that rascally sort of people but chiefly because he slighted the nobility and chose mean persons to be his counsellors and advisers the chief of these being thomas preston one of good family and robert cochrane a man endued with great strength of body and equal audacity of mind in classing thomas preston and robert cochrane amongst that rascally sort of people buchanan contradicts himself for he admits that preston was of good family and he must have known that cochrane's family was still more ancient so that the historian only gives evidence of his own tuft-hunting tendencies what were the feelings of the nobility toward robert cochrane may be gathered from the titles to the chapters of a scurrilous book subsequently written in their interest for the purpose of denouncing his memory one this minister's robert cochrane raising himself first by his impudence and next by his alliance with a noble lord whom he wormed out of power two his poor condition when he first came to court five his buildings and passion for hunting seven his working the disgrace of all the great men and such this last head working the disgrace of all the great men appears to form the key to their whole hatred but it implies patriotism towards a monarch and a country whom the great men had previously oppressed i am quite content to rest the reputation of my ancestor upon the libellous evidence of his adversaries or the showing of the scottish historians that he attempted to abridge the power of the nobles and succeeded to such an extent as to secure his own murder 
to enter at length into such matters would however be to substitute my ancestor's biography for my own and therefore it will only be necessary to abridge from pinkerton a few interesting extracts relative to this romance of scottish history Quote, the new earl of mar unconscious that his extreme elevation was an infallible step to the deepest ruin continued to abuse his power and that of his sovereign the nobles beheld the places formerly given to their sons now sold to mar's followers the prelates and other dignitaries of the church sighed at the increase of simony and such and such in short the whole honour and welfare of the king and kingdom were sacrificed on the domestic altar of this base and covetous minion some of the peers assembled and consulted upon the means of delivering the realm from the disgrace and destruction inflicted by cochrane and the other royal favourites a noble deputation had even been sent to the king requesting that he would dismiss these pernicious counsellors and restore the confidence placed by his ancestors in the loyalty of the nobility the answer of james was far from satisfactory but his peers assented to delay and dissembled till some decisive order should arise the scottish army amounting to about fifty thousand had crowded to the royal banner at Muir near edinburgh whence they marched to sontre and to lauda at which place they encamped between the church and the village cochrane earl of mar conducted the artillery and his presence and pomp were additional insults on the morning after their arrival at lauda the peers assembled in a secret council in the church and deliberated upon their designs of revenge the earls of angus argyle huntley orkney or caithness crawford the lord's home fleming grey drummond hales and seaton are chiefly mentioned upon this occasion and the discontent must have spread far when we find evandale the chancellor and some bishops united to the above names in the course of the debate grey took occasion to introduce an apologue the mice consulted upon the means of deliverance from their tyrannic enemy the cat and agreed that a bell should be suspended about her neck to notify her approach and their danger but what mouse has the courage sufficient to fasten the bell i shall bell the cat exclaimed the impatience of angus in whom a current of the blood of douglas flowed and the homely times conferred upon him the appellation of archibald bell the cat it was concluded that the king should be put in a gentle imprisonment in the castle of edinburgh and that all his favourites should be instantly hanged over the bridge of lander cochrane ignorant of their designs at length left the royal presence to proceed to the council the earl was attended by three hundred men armed with light battle-axes and distinguished by his livery of white with black fillets he was clothed in a riding cloak of black velvet and wore a large chain of gold around his neck his horn of the chase or of battle was adorned with gold and precious stones and his helmet overlaid with the same valuable material was borne before him approaching the door of the church he commanded an attendant to knock with authority and sir robert douglas of lochleven who guarded the passage inquiring the name was answered tis i the earl of mar cochrane and some of his friends were admitted angus advanced to him and pulling the golden chain from his neck said a rope will become thee better while douglas of lochleven seized his hunting horn declaring that he had been too long a hunter of mischief rather astonished than alarmed cochrane said my lords is it in jest or earnest to which it was replied it is good earnest and so thou shalt find it for thou and thy accomplices have too long abused our prince's favour but no longer expect such advantage for thou and thy followers shall now reap the deserved reward having secured mar the lords dispatched some men-at-arms to the king's pavilion conducted by two or three moderate leaders who amused james while their followers seized the favourites sir william roger the english musician preston a gentleman honmill torfashan leonard and others were instantly hanged over the bridge at lauda john ramsay of balmain having clasped the king's person was alone spared cochrane was now brought out his hands bound with a rope and thus conducted to the bridge and hanged above his companions Quote ends. even the privilege of being hanged with one of the silken cords of his pavilion was denied him and his making such a request pinkerton attributes to weak pride though it certainly looked more like cool pride which would not condescend to beg life and only ask to die like a gentleman much in the same spirit but showing the abilities of the man 
are the following extracts from a detection of the falsehood abuse and misrepresentations in a late libel entitled the life of sir robert cochrane prime minister of scotland to james the third this cochrane sir robert according to the greatest of the scottish writers lived at a time when a faction in england made war on their lawful sovereign and imposed it on the king by force of arms that he should bear the name and ensigns or badges of a king but the power of the government should be in the heads of their faction against which violence and tyranny the queen drew the sword of her husband henry the sixth deliverance with such vigour and success as rescued him from his enemies slew their chiefs in battle destroyed two armies gaining two complete victories and even when fortune deserted this masculine princess in her final overthrow six and thirty thousand men were slain before she lost the field these were the times when cochrane became the minion of the king of scotland who departing from the councils of his ancient servants and withdrawing himself from the nobility chose mean and infamous persons to be the companions of his pleasures and the advisers of his reign of these one preston was chief though born of a better family than any of his comrades who abandoned himself to indulge the king's humour in all things and cochrane came next who as a builder was instantly made courtier history describes him as a man of great bodily strength and of equal impudence who making himself known to the king by a duel which he fought was later admitted at court with great expectations of advancement having been employed in matters of small concern which he performed with great application and insinuating himself into the king's favour by constant assiduity he became immediately advised with in the most important and most intimate councils of the kingdom preston upon this made him his son by giving him his daughter in marriage quote ends. to return to the descendants of this murdered minister quote begins this allen son of the murdered robert in fourteen fifty two is witness to the mortification which robert lord lyle made to the abbot and conventual brethren of the monastery of paisley of the fishing on the river at clyde at the place called crokershot for the help of their prayers to advance his spiritual estate in which deed he is designated alanus cochrane armiger his father being then alive and to whom he succeeded before the fourteen eighty he married space daughter of space by whom he had robert a son who was father of john cochrane of that ilk who immediately succeeded his grandfather upon his death which john for some consideration i know not obtained a license from his sovereign lord king james the fourth under the great seal imploring him to dispose of either his lands of easter cochrane in renfrewshire or his lands of pitfor in perthshire accordingly he alienated part of his lands of cochrane to james archbishop of glasgow anno fifteen nineteen to which deed he appends his seal the impression bearing three boar's heads erased and circumscribed sigillum johannes de cochrane his wife elizabeth daughter of john simple of fullwood who bore him a son john who was served and returned heir to his father on the twelfth of may fifteen thirty nine he dying in fifteen fifty seven left issue by mary his wife daughter of lindsay of dunrod in vicomtau de renfrew a son william who succeeded him in fifteen ninety three he erected from the foundation at cochrane the ancient seat of the family a very high tower of freestone and adorned it with large plantations he marrying margaret daughter of robert montgomery of skelmurley in vicomitau de Eyre, by mary his wife daughter of robert lord semple had a daughter elizabeth his sole heir he wisely considering the proper way of supporting his family was to settle his daughter in his own time and declining to marry her to a richer family than his son he made a prudent and discreet match for her with alexander blair a younger son of an ancient and genteel family in ayrshire whose ancestors had been seated in the country aforesaid for many ages before so that beside a noble alliance and a competent patrimony he yielded to change his name to cochrane which was almost the only condition the old gentleman required this alexander so taking upon him the surname of cochrane was a virtuous and frugal man and studied as much the good of the family as if he himself had been born the heir thereof in sixteen twenty two he acquired the lands of cowden 
with an intention to unite them to the ancient patrimonial inheritance of Cochrane. But afterwards he sold them to Sir William, his second son, as to provide for his younger children, for, besides Sir John, his eldest son, he had six other sons and two daughters. Sir William Cochrane of Cowden, Alexander, a colonel in the King's service, in the wars of Ireland, which commenced in 1641, with the murder of upwards of 50,000 Scots and English by the native Irish. Hugh, author of the branch of Fergusley, he was a colonel first under the renowned Gustavus Adolphus, King of Sweden, and afterward to King Charles I, in the time of the Civil War in Ireland. Bryce, a colonel in the time of the Civil War, who lost his life in the King's service, anno 1650. Captain Ochter Gavin Cochrane of Craigmer, was the seventh and youngest son. Elizabeth, married to John Lennox of Woodhead in Stirlingshire. Grissel to Thomas Dunlop of Housley, which Sir John, in time of the unhappy civil war in Britain, firmly adhered to the interest of King Charles I, and had a colonel's commission in the army. In the year 1644, he was sent ambassador to several princes to solicit their assistance in His Majesty's behalf, which he performed with such diligence and conduct that, in the treaty of peace which was set on foot betwixt the king and the parliament of england and the estates of scotland anno sixteen forty six he was together with the marquis of huntley and montrose the earls of nithsdale crawford Traquair, and such proposed to be accepted from the king's pardon which the king generously refused upon the murder of the king he attended king charles the second into foreign ports and in sixteen fifty was sent into poland to crave the aid of the scots merchants there but before his return the king and the scots army were defeated at worcester he continuing with the king during his exile died about the same time of the restoration without issue so that his next brother sir william became the heir which sir william was carefully educated in grammar learning in his youth whence he was removed to the university where having applied himself indefatigably to his studies and highly improved his natural endowments with academical learning he removed from thence after he had taken the degree of master of arts and studied our laws in which profession he attained to an uncommon perfection soon after his entering on the stage of business he became much famed for his prudent management and conduct by which he acquired a fair estate both in the shires of renfrew and eyre for the last of which he had the honour to serve as a member in the parliament sixteen forty seven wherein his abilities were soon discovered by the great and leading men of the house and he showed himself through the course of the sitting of that parliament a good and even patriot wholly intent upon the honour and safety of the king whose interest he did visibly advance and the welfare and tranquillity of the nation then in no small ferment Quote ends. on the visit of charles i to his scottish dominions in sixteen forty one for the purpose of allaying the hostile feelings which his arbitrary acts had there excited sir william cochrane of cowden had sufficient influence to be instrumental in reconciling the monarch and his angry subjects together with sufficient substance and loyalty to minister to the necessities of his sovereign for these and other services sir william was at this time elected to the peerage under the title lord cochrane of cowden the gratitude of charles however not being openly manifested until some years afterwards a prisoner in carisbrook castle as this circumstance is to the best of my knowledge unique and is at variance with the statements of some scottish genealogists who give the date of letters patron as at scarborough december the twenty seventh sixteen forty seven an extract from the act of the privy council in edinburgh confirming the original patent may be gratifying to the historian Quote begins at edinburgh the first day of april sixteen forty eight the which day and year of our lord at his majesty's privy council john earl of cranford and lindsay produced a patent under his majesty's great seal dated carisbrook the twenty-sixth day of december sixteen forty seven by which his majesty considering the faithfulness and good affection of sir william cochrane of cowden towards his majesty's service and his majesty being willing for the further encouragement to continue therein to bestow some token of his royal favour on him hath given and granted to the said sir william cochrane and his heirs male lawfully begotten the title and dignity of a lord of parliament within this kingdom to be called in all time coming lord cochrane of dundonald and to have exercise and enjoy all the privileges liberties and pre-eminences belonging thereto and such and such in token whereof archibald marquis of argyle president of the council at this time deliberate in the name of lord cochrane received the same on his knees 
and such and such extractum delibris actorum Quote ends. it is not my intention to dilate upon the course pursued by lord cochrane in promoting the reconciliation of charles and his hereditary liegemen suffice it to say that whilst his lordship's predilections and services were in favour of the constitutional power of the king he made a firm stand against his despotic tendencies especially when meditating the subversion of the scottish church under the guise of ecclesiastical reform in the national struggle which ensued after the death of charles i lord cochrane was amongst the most active in raising troops to assert the right of charles the second to the throne the subjoined letter from that monarch divested of its antique orthography will show the nature of the services rendered Quote begins charles the second right trusty and well beloved we greet yon well we have seen your letter to the duke of hamilton whom you give no encouragement so hope that sometime you with the horse raised upon the baronies of Eyre and renfrew shall soon be in arms having been engaged to give to general major van drosk the first regiment of horse raised within our kingdom of scotland we could not possibly break our promise to so deserving a person but seeing your brother was appointed to have the command of one of the regiments of foot before they were converted into horse he will now be disappointed as likewise will colonel cunningham of their expectations we have therefore thought fit to desire you to shift your brother up to the army to us and we do oblige ourselves to take him in our particular favour and to give him the command of a regiment either of horse or foot we likewise find you desire the removing of the garrison from newark but having advised twice with our committee of estate we find it is not for the good of the service to remove the said garrison but we are content that the strength be reduced to the number of threaty soldiers only we shall desire that you would be assisted in hasting these levies and continue in your barony all public dispatch so as you may be in continual receipt of our respects to you so we bid you now heartily farewell from our camp royal at woodhend the fifth of august sixteen fifty one to our right trusty and well-beloved the lord cochrane letter ends the preceding letter marks the dawn of that ingratitude towards his tried adherents of which charles has been not without reason accused lord cochrane's reward for raising the first regiment of horse in scotland was the displacement of his brother from the command in favour of a dutchman notwithstanding that the whole expenditure had been borne by his lordship whose fate it subsequently was that the Stuarts should draw largely upon resources which to the injury of his descendants his loyalty ungrudgingly supplied passing over the defeat which followed i select from others a letter addressed by charles when in exile to lord cochrane under the assumed name of lenos and richmond its purport being to show that the unfortunate royal family depended upon lord cochrane's management not only for advice but what was more to the purpose for the means of subsistence letter begins february second sixteen fifty seven my lord i find myself very much obliged to your lordship by your great care of my dear son's interests and mine and have seen your letter concerning the gentleman recommended for a commissioner who though a stranger to me yet since it is the opinion of your lordship that he be added to the number of the commissioners i do in this as in other things hearken to your lordship's advice relying on your lordship's favour to me and therefore do hereby invite him if he will accept the trouble with many thanks to your lordship and to him i must further beseech of your lordship to intend the raising of five thousand pounds upon glasgow and to labour the sale of methuen and kilmurricate both with all possible expedition i hope to have the happiness of seeing your lordship in these parts ere long that i may have a longer conveniency of making my acknowledgments to your lordship for your eminent favour to your lordship's most humble servant c r lenos and richmond for my lord cochrane letter ends whether lord cochrane visited the exiled court or not i have no documents to decide nor is it at all material these letters being adduced to show the nature of his connection with the stuarts in their day of humiliation which only appeared to add to his zeal for their welfare the son alluded to in the preceding letter was the duke of monmouth for espousing whose cause in the subsequent reign of james the second the cochrane family suffered severely soon after the restoration in sixteen sixty lord cochrane was sworn a privy councillor and by his majesty's special choice was constituted one of the commissioners of the treasury and exchequer 
which great and weighty employment says crawford he discharged with admirable prudence and integrity to the general satisfaction of the whole nation in increasing still more in wealth and honour he acquired the lordship of paisley where he fixed his seat and lived with great splendour and hospitality for many years after the barbarous murder of the late king his lordship contributed his best and hearty endeavours towards bringing home charles second to inherit the rightful possession of the throne of those realms which no doubt was the cause when oliver cromwell came to be called protector why he fined my lord cochrane among other royalists in five thousand pounds sterling by special ordinance of the commonwealth of england dated april the twelfth sixteen fifty four the following letters of the dukes of lennox and monmouth are still in my possession and from historic interest alone require no apology for their introduction in this place letter begins london december twenty seventh sixteen sixty two my lord i received a discharge from your lordship which being ill-drawn i have forborne to sign it but shall readily perform it as soon as it comes to my hands corrected by mr graham i must entreat of your lordship's endeavours to raise fifteen hundred pounds upon the two years rent of gila and my other lands for the year sixteen sixty one with which i would desire your lordship to discharge the six hundred pounds you borrowed from me when i was in edinburgh and the seven hundred pounds i borrowed of sir james stuart at the same time the rest to be returned to me who am your lordship's humble servant lenos and richmond for my lord cochrane p s i desire your lordship to excuse my own writing for nothing but illness should make me make use of another london february twenty sixth sixteen sixty three my lord give me leave to add this trouble to your lordship's favours in desiring that you will be pleased to send me a full account of all you know of the condition of my affairs in scotland and wherein and how you conceive any part of my estate proper or casual may be better improved to my advantage with your lordship's advice for the management thereof for the future if you know of any grants made by me to any person in scotland when i was there which may be prejudicial to or on my estates you will be pleased to acquaint me with it for i am resolved to repose all my confidence upon your lordship's directions and to take measures of all the management of my affairs from them i shall wholly trust to your lordship and therefore entreat you will not impart this to anybody but conceal the request of your lordship's very humble servant lenos and richmond for my lord cochrane whitehall august twenty fifth sixteen sixty three my lord i must desire your lordship to give yourself the trouble of sending me word how my engagements stand to my estate mortgaged in scotland that i may know whether it be convenient that the several persons to whom it is mortgaged should receive the profits of the lands mortgaged to them till both principal and interest are satisfied or whether it be convenient if one person in the name of the rest should receive the whole profits of the estate and engage to pay all the debts both principal and interest in so many years and then to return the estate to me again i must beg your lordship's faithful advice in this having found it so formally and good my lord let me know in how many years my estate will pay the debt upon it for both principal and interest i cannot believe that anybody will be so warm in my concerns as yourself and therefore wholly repose this trust in you desiring you to send me in writing a conveyance of my estate to yourself for the payment of the debt in the aforesaid years with the return of the estate into my hands who am my lord your lordship's most obliged servant lennis and richmond letters end the following letter written to lord cochrane after the removal of the court to oxford on account of the plague raging in london will show the straits to which even the wealthiest of the scottish nobility had been reduced letter begins oxford november the eleventh sixteen sixty five my lord i had written to your lordship before this had i not an intention of coming to scotland myself but being now prevented by other affairs i must desire your lordship to make all possible speed that may be to return me five hundred pounds out of the thousand pounds that are due to me my lord i was never in a greater strait in my life the plague having prevented my tenant's payment if you ever did intend to oblige me i am sure you could never have a better opportunity than making me a present payment good my lord do not fail me who am your most humble servant richmond and lenos for my lord cochrane 
P.S. My uncle Orbigny is very sick at Paris, and we expect to hear he is dead by every post. The last letters assuring he was past recovery. July 1666. My lord, I need not acquaint your lordship how great a confidence I have in your lordship's friendship and assistance. Having now sent Borman into Scotland to attend and follow your lordship's directions, and my lord Newburs for the completion and settling the whole affairs of the Admiralty, if my lord Macdonnell goes on in his intended bargain, I shall expect six thousand pounds to be paid and returned to me by Michaelmas. Please remember the hundred pounds you reserve till Borman's coming. I shall trouble your lordship with nothing more at present, but the assurance of being your lordship's very humble servant, Richmond and Lenos, for my lord Cochrane. London, 18th of September, 1666. My lord, though I consider that five thousand pounds is too small a sum for so considerable and convenient an estate to my lord Macdonald, yet I am satisfied to be ruled by the market and the exigency of my own affairs, but especially by your lordship's judgment and kindness, of which I have had so good experience. My lord, the sad accident of fire which hath lately happened in London hath almost ruined us all. I must therefore earnestly entreat you to return me what money you have in your hands of mine, with all possible speed, not knowing which way to turn myself at present, there being no such thing as money here. Pray likewise hasten Borman in returning what money is due to me on the prizes, in doing all which you will very much oblige your lordship's humble servant, Richmond and Lennis, for my lord Cochrane at Edinburgh. Letters end. I have purposely refrained from comment on these letters as being foreign to the purpose of this introductory chapter, which is not to dilate on immaterial subjects, but simply to point out the connection of the Cochrane family with the Stuarts and their faithful adherents. The subjoined, from the Duke of Monmouth, is also curious as alluding to the disaster of invasion in addition to those of plague and fire. Letter begins. June 28, 1667. My lord, so soon as I received your lordships of the 26th of May, I was commanded by the king for Harwich, and have ever since been so hurried about in this confusion upon the arrival of the Dutch, that I have not had time to answer your lordship, to whom I do acknowledge myself very much obliged for your care of my affairs. And if it lies in my power to acknowledge it otherwise than in words, your lordship shall ever find me really to be, my lord, your lordship's real friend and servant, Monmouth and Buccleuch. These for my Lord Cochrane. Letter ends. On the 12th of May, 1669, Lord Cochrane was created Earl of Dundonald. The annexed is His Majesty's order for the patent. Order begins. Our Sovereign Lord, considering that it has always been the ancient, constant, and worthy practice of all kings to confer titles and degrees of honour and dignity upon such of those subjects whose good services and worth have so deserved, and that his majesty's father of blessed memory did in the year 1641 dignify and confer upon his right trusty and well-beloved william lord of cochrane the title of lord cochrane and now his majesty in consideration of his faithful services and for the better encouragement of him and his family to continue in their constant and affectionate adhering to his interest and service for the future being graciously pleased to confer a further mark of his royal favour upon him doth therefore of his royal and princely power ordain a letter patent to be made and decreed under the great seal of his ancient kingdom of scotland in due form making constituting and creating the said william lord cochrane and his heirs male which failing the oldest heirs female without division already procreate or to be procreate of the body of the said william lord cochrane and such and such and such to be called and designed now and forever hereafter earl of dundonald lord cochrane of paisley and ochil tree and such and such brackets then follow the usual technical formalities close brackets may it please your majesty this contains your majesty's warrant for a patent to be passed under the great seal of scotland for creating william lord cochrane earl of dundonald lord cochrane of paisley and ochil tree with power and such and such and such for subscription Lord Dale. Sit supra scribitur. Charles R. Warrant ends. The subjoined letters from the Duke and Duchess of Monmouth, the latter, the heiress of Buccleuch, are not without historical interest. Letter begins. 
Whitehall, May the 2nd, 1671. My lord, this is expressly to beg your lordship's pardon, that I writ you not. By the person that brought you my commission concerning my lands, in which I was confident to put your lordship's and Lord Cochrane's names, being assured that neither yourself nor any of your family would deny me the favour of your assistance in the management of my estate, which I have now taken into my own possession, and hope to see the good effects of it. I beseech your lordship to give my service and excuse to Lord Cochrane, and tell him I hope he will be no worse a friend to me than you have been, whom, I must acknowledge, have obliged me ever to be my lord, your very humble servant, Monmouth and Buccleck for Lord Dundonald. Whitehall, May 25th, 1671. My lord, I know not how to express my thanks to your lordship for the trouble I have put upon you in your journey to Broholm, where your presence hath been of that advantage in my affairs as could not without you have been expected. I thank your lordship most heartily for this, and all other your kindnesses to me, and particularly your advice concerning Orkney and such, and to refrain the signing of anything but what shall be most maturely advised by your lordship, and such other my friends to whose counsel and advice as always faithful to me i shall firmly adhere and constantly remain my lord your very affectionate friend and humble servant monmouth and buccleck for the right honourable the earl of dundonald october the thirty first sixteen seventy one my lord being very sensible of your constant care and industry to promote and advance all our interests in scotland and receiving daily demonstrations of your particular kindness and friendship to us we are the more confident on all occasions to depend wholly upon you for resolution in doubtful and assistance in difficult cases and do entreat your lordship to take them seriously in your own consideration and weighing all circumstances deal freely and candidly with us and declare truly to us your opinion what you do conceive fit for us to do to extricate ourselves out of those dangers both we and our estate lie under we are now both of us so near the time of our majority and are told that it is very necessary for us to undertake a journey to Scotland this next spring. If your lordship be of the same judgment, we must, if possible, find out some expedient to effect it. My lord, we are informed that many of our late chamberlains are resolved to stand trial with us for three thousand pounds, yet remaining in their hands upon the balance of their accounts, unless they may have such discharge as they please. We do therefore very earnestly recommend it to your lordship's care to proceed vigorously against them, not only for that, but also for the great waste and destruction they have made of the woods. A letter is also written to the Lord President Stair, and the rest of the Lords, of the Session's favour, for a speedy dispatch of our concerns before them. We shall have the satisfaction that in the place where we have received so great obligations from your Lordship, and the rest of our friends, even there we shall express with much sincerity that we are, my Lord, your Lordship's very affectionate and humble servants, Buccleck and Monmouth, Anna Buccleck and Monmouth, for the Right Honourable the Earl of Dundonald. March 14, 1674. My Lord, the great assurance we have had of your affection and kindness to us, which upon all occasions you have given sufficient testimonies of, in your adherence to, and promoting our interest in Scotland, encourages us to entreat and, indeed, earnest lie to your continuance thereof, but especially at this time when we find our tenants like to be ruined and undone by the severity of continued frost and snow how mischievous the consequences thereof may be to us we are not able at this distance to conjecture only we have just reason to fear the worst but we depending very much if not solely upon your lordship's wisdom and good conduct at this juncture and very well knowing how prevalent your countenance and authority will be among our tenants and what encouragement they will receive from your presence, must needs desire and entreat your lordship that you will not fail to be at the next land settling, for it is your discretion and prudence that shall be our guide and measure in the regulation of our own interests, or that of any of our tenants who shall be held fit objects of our consideration and favour in so general a calamity, if they be recommended by your lordship unto my lord. Your lordship's most affectionate friends and servants, Buccleck and Monmouth, Anna Buccleck and Monmouth, for Lord Dundonald. September 29th, 1674. My lord, upon all occasions my wife and I do receive new testimonies and proofs of your continued kindness to us, and your unwearied care and industry to do all good offices which may any wise conduce to our profit and advantage, 
and in truth the great pains you have taken about our affairs and the trouble you took upon you of an inconvenient journey to be at our land settling are sufficient assurances of your zeal and affection for our welfare and prosperity for which we owe you a particular acknowledgment and i do assure your lordship i am so extremely sensible of these and all the other kindnesses which you have done for us that it shall never be my fault if i do not make it appear how much i am my lord your lordship's most affectionate friend and servant buccleck and monmouth for lord dundonald whitehall nineteenth march sixteen seventy six my lord we are truly sorry to understand by your letter that you are unable to ride by reason of your age and weakness and that you cannot go all the way in your coach to our land settling we know very well and have had long and great experience how useful you have been in that affair for many years together and we may have just reason to fear that we may suffer very much by your absence from that service so many of our lands lying at this time waste the tenants will be apt to be discouraged when they want your countenance to whom they are so well known but my lord we do not think it reasonable to press you with arguments to undertake anything how necessary soever it may be for our service if it be in the least prejudicial to your health and safety therefore if your infirmities cannot well dispense with your own going that journey we do entreat your lordship to prevail with your son my lord cochrane to supply your place for we are very sure that there is not one related to you but will have a great influence on our tenants and next to yourself we can design none more considerable than your son we need not tell you how much the present necessity of our affairs requires all prudence all the countenance and authority and all the diligence of ourselves and of my lords our commissioners to bring our state out of that waste ruinous and scandalous condition under which it hath lain and we do know that your lordship will contribute as much pains and be as instrumental to bring this to pass as any person whatsoever and in this assurance we do subscribe ourselves as in truth we are my lord your lordship's most affectionate friends and servants buccleck and monmouth anna buccleck and monmouth for lord dundonald letters end the earl of dundonald was subsequently appointed by james the second one of the privy council of scotland as the place from which the patent was dated viz hounslow heath is of historical significance i shall give the document entire patent begins james r right trusty and right entirely beloved cousin and counsellor right trusty and well-beloved cousin and counsellor right trusty and entirely beloved cousins and counsellors right trusty and right well-beloved cousins and counsellors right trusty and well-beloved cousins and counsellors right trusty and well-beloved counsellors and trusty and well-beloved counsellors we greet you well whereas we are fully satisfied of the loyalty abilities and dutiful affection to our service of our right trusty and well-beloved earl of dundonald we therefore thought fit to add him to our privy council of that our ancient kingdom and do authorize and require you to admit him accordingly and we do hereby dispense with him from taking the test oath of allegiance or any other oath except that of privy councillor only for doing whereof this shall be your warrant and to him a full and ample security given at our camp on hounslow heath the tenth day of june sixteen eighty six and of our reign the second year by his majesty's command milford patent ends in the subsequent rebellions of argyle and monmouth the cochranes again suffered severely john the second son of the earl of dundonald being deeply implicated therein and only escaping with his life by the earl satisfying first the greed of james the second's popish priests and secondly that of james himself the annexed extracts from burnet will show all that needs to be said on this head Quote, cochrane another of those who had been concerned in this treaty as to an insurrection in scotland was complained of as having talked very freely of the duke's government of scotland upon which the scottish secretary sent a note to him desiring him to come to him for it was intended only to give him a reprimand and to have ordered him to go to scotland but he knew his own secret so he left his lodgings and got beyond the sea this showed the court had not yet got full evidence otherwise 
he would have been taken up as well as others were the deliberations in holland among the english and scots that fled thither came to ripen faster than was expected lord argyle had been quiet ever since the disappointment in the year eighty three he had lived for most part in friesland but came off to amsterdam and met with the rest of his countrymen that lay concealed there the chief of whom were the lord melville sir patrick hume and sir john cochrane open bracket the first of these melville was a fearful and mean-spirited man a zealous presbyterian but more zealous in preserving his person and estate hume was a hot and eager man full of passion and resentment and instead of minding the business then in hand he was always forming schemes about the modelling of matters when they should prevail in which he was so earnest that he fell into perpetual disputes and quarrels about it cochrane was more tractable Close bracket. with these lord argyle communicated all the advices that were sent to him on margin argyle designed to invade scotland volume three twenty seven folio volume one six hundred and thirty two argyle landed in the isle of bute with his adherents Quote, he had left his arms in a castle with such a guard as he could spare but they were routed by a part of the king's forces and with this he lost both heart and hope and then apprehending that all was gone he put himself in disguise and had almost escaped but he was taken a body of gentlemen that had followed him stood better to it and forced their way through so that the greater part of them escaped some of these were taken the chief of them were sir john cochrane ayloff and rumbold these last two were englishmen but i knew not upon what motive it was that they chose rather to run fortunes with argyle than with the duke of monmouth thus was this rebellion brought to a speedy end with the effusion of very little blood volume one folio page six hundred and twenty nine quote cochrane had a rich father the earl of dundonald and he offered the priests five thousand pounds to save his son they wanted a stock of money for managing their designs so they interposed so effectually that the bargain was made but to cover it cochrane petitioned the council that he might be sent to the king for he had some secrets of great importance which were not fit to be communicated to any but to the king himself he was upon that brought up to london and after he had been for some time in private with the king the matters he had discovered were said to be of such importance that in consideration of that the king pardoned him it was said he had discovered all their negotiations with the elector of brandenburg and the prince of orange but this was a pretence only given out to conceal the bargain for the prince told me he had never once seen him the secret of this came to be known soon after volume one folio six hundred thirty four ends lord macaulay's account of the same event as regarded my ancestor for it is from this sir john cochrane that the present branch of our family is descended will complete all which is necessary to be alluded to in this place quote, with hume sir patrick was connected another scottish exile of great note sir john cochrane second son of the earl of dundonald the great question was whether the highlands or the lowlands should be the seat of war the earl argyle wished to establish his authority over his own domains and to take possession of the ancient seat of his family at inverary but hume and cochrane were impracticable seeing that amongst his own mountains and lakes and at the head of an army of his own tribe he would be able to bear down their opposition and to exercise the full authority of a general they said that the campbells took up arms neither for liberty nor for the church of god but for mccallum moore alone cochrane declared that he would go to ayrshire if he went by himself and with nothing but a pitchfork in his hand argyle after long resistance consented and cochrane and hume were at the head of a force to invade the lowlands ayrshire was cochrane's object and the coast was guarded by english frigates a party of militia lay at greenock but cochrane who wanted provisions was determined to land hume objected but cochrane was peremptory cochrane entered greenock and procured a supply of meal but found no disposition to its erection cochrane having found it impossible to raise the population on the south of the clyde rejoined argyle in butte the earl again proposed to make an attempt on inverary and again encountered pertinacious opposition the seamen sided with hume and cochrane the highlanders were absolutely at the command of their chieftain cochrane was taken and sent to london he held amongst the scotch rebels the same rank which had been held by grey in the west of england that cochrane should be forgiven 
by a prince vindictive beyond all example seemed incredible but cochrane was the younger son of a rich family it was therefore only by sparing him that money could be made out of him his father lord dundonald offered a bribe to the priests of the royal household and a pardon was granted Quote ends. the history of the succeeding earls of dundonald down to the failure of issue in the first branch is thus detailed by crawford Quote begins william first earl of dundonald married euphemie daughter of sir william scott of ardross in comitau de fife by whom he had two sons and a daughter one william lord cochrane who died in the flower of his age anno sixteen eighty leaving issue by the lady catherine his wife daughter of john earl of castles john who succeeded his grandfather in the honour william cochrane of kilmarnock a member of parliament for the borough of wigton and the other town in that district and one of the commissioners for keeping her majesty's signet sir alexander erskine lord lyon and john pringle of hanning being joined in commission with him he married grissel daughter of james second marquis of montrose and has issue thomas cochrane of polkey third son died without children alexander cochrane of bonshaw the youngest also three daughters first margaret married to alexander earl of eglinton second helen to john earl of sutherland third jean to john viscount of dundee and afterward to william viscount of kilsyth second son sir john ochran of ochiltree in ayrshire likewise a daughter grissel married to george lord ross this earl gave way to nature in the spring of the year sixteen eighty six and was by his own direction interred in the Proc church of dundonald without any funeral monument but upon his astuchion i find the arms of these noble and ancient families paternal side cochrane of that ilk lord semple cunningham of glengarnock lord carlisle of torthorald maternal side cochrane of that ilk montgomery of skelmurley lindsay of dunrod lord semple to william earl of dundonald succeeded john his grandson and heir a nobleman of great goodness and excellent parts he died in the prime of his years anno sixteen ninety one regretted by all those who knew him leaving issue by the lady susanna his wife daughter of william duke of hamilton two sons william who succeeded him in the honours but died unmarried the nineteenth of november seventeen o five and john married anne daughter of charles earl of dunmore a lady who wanted no virtue to make her an acceptable wife she died in seventeen eleven universally lamented whose conduct in all conditions of life rendered her loss a lasting grief to her relations he had by her a son and three daughters william lord cochrane lady anne lady catherine lady suzanne arms argent a chevron ghouls betwixt three boars heads azure supported by two rutch hounds of the first crest a horse argent motto virtuti et labore end of introductory Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.